0: All right, well, good morning once again, beloved. Great to see all you here today. This time we come to the preaching of God's Word. I want to invite you then to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. As we continue in this verse-by-verse study of this great little epistle, our text for today is going to be Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And I'll start by reading the text for us and then we'll look at the passage together. So beginning in chapter 4 and verse 2 here now are the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now remember that the book of Colossians is a defense of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. False teachers had come into the city of Colossae and were trying to deny that Christ alone was sufficient. They were trying to deny that Christ alone was not enough. And they were saying things like, no, that you needed Christ plus human philosophy. And you needed Christ plus Jewish legalism. And you needed Christ plus angel worship. And you needed Christ plus asceticism of a life of extreme denial. And so they were really denying the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in rebuttal to that, um, we start to see this great climax of the book. And really, it comes in two passages. First was back in chapter 1 in verse 15 to 20, where he discusses the supremacy of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And remember, the firstborn here speaks of his preeminence, not that he was the first one born. For by him, Paul says, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And of course, it continues right through to verse 20, where we have some of the most awe-inspiring verses in all of scripture. And then the second great climactic statement was in chapter 2 in verse 10, which says, And in him you have been made complete. And so the argument of the book then is that in spite of what the false teachers claim, Christ is indeed sufficient. Christ is all we need, and he establishes that in the first two chapters of the book. Now having established that theologically and doctrinally, Paul now begins in chapter 3 and here in chapter 4, with what that means practically in our lives. And the lesson that we learn is that every part of our lives must be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In the first 12 verses of chapter 3, he began with our personal lives. For example, in verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And then he starts to branch out just a little bit further and he goes beyond just our our personal life to our church life. And in chapters 3, verse 12 through 17, he talks about how we are to interact with one another. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another... "...and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should do." And then Paul says, "...and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity." And then he branches out a little bit further, and he starts to address our home life. And in chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, he talks about how wives are to submit to their husbands, And how husbands are to love their wives. And how children are to obey their parents. And then he expands out even further. And starting in chapter 3, verse 20, he he talked about our our work life. As servants are to obey their masters. And in chapter 4, verse 1, masters are to treat their servants well. And, And again, all of this is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so now as we turn our attention to our text today... Paul branches out even further as he instructs us on our evangelism and how we are to be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us three important things in these five verses that are incredibly practical, and you'll see those listed on the back of your bullet notes. Let's begin with number one. As in verses two through four, the Apostle Paul says that, We must be a people who pray purposefully. Who pray purposefully. That's the focus beginning in verse 2. And in all of our efforts to reach the world with the gospel, it must begin with prayer. Prayer is not our last resort, prayer must be our first response. And it's been well said that before you talk to a lost person about God, you first need to talk to God about that lost person. For you see, prayer not only prepares us, but prayer is to prepare them as well as it invites God into the circumstances and the context in which we will be able to share the gospel with them. And so that's why he begins in verse 2, and he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And this word used here proskartero is a very it's actually a very strong verb and it means to attend to constantly or to persevere in or, or really to devote yourself to and the idea here is to come before the throne of grace and to stay and to continue at the throne of grace don't go running to the throne of grace then immediately run out go to the throne of grace stay awhile constantly be seeking after God and with the added preposition here it intensifies the meaning and really it means then to hold fast and to not let go it's talking about persevering in prayer in other words Paul is calling on believers to persist in their prayer life and not to grow weary of heart but to continue steadfastly in prayer of course, this kind of perseverance and prayer is taught throughout the the New Testament. And I'd like to just give you a couple cross-references to really establish this. And and the first one I think of is, is with our Lord Jesus Christ in that great 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel where he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what the people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time, the judge refused. But finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, when the Son of Man returns, will he find you faithfully still seeking him in prayer regardless of the outcome? Or will you have lost faith? Well, what's the principle here? Jesus says it to us in verse 1. We should always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit. And then probably the verse we're most familiar with is 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, that says to pray without ceasing. What does that mean, pray without ceasing? How am I to pray at all times? Well, practically, it refers to us always having a God conscience, being conscious of God at all times so that no matter what happens, instantly you respond by talking to God. We are to be continually in a state of dependence upon God in prayer. So we have a daily open dialogue talking to God. And so in verse 2, this is a command from God through the Apostle Paul that we are to be a people who continue steadfastly and prayer, and admittedly, I have been seeking God for the last couple of month, uh, months now to to really grow in this area of my own personal walk. I want to be a man of God who is committed to praying without ceasing, without ceasing. And so, before I even got to this text, I says, "Oh, hello, friend. <laughs> We've been talking about this, and and I'm I'm joyful to confess that that." I've seen growth in it in my own life already. And so, just to encourage you with that. Notice the second half of this verse as Paul continues. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Being watchful in prayer means to keep alert. means to stay awake. To um, keep your antenna up. To keep your eyes open for people around you and and the needs of those around you especially people who need the Lord. And it is easy for us to be so caught up in whatever we're doing that we walk right past unsaved people or the needs of the congregation and these are the people and situations that God has placed all around his people. (laughs) But how often are we so wrapped up in our little world that we walk right by with those blinders on So we need to be watchful, keep alert, stay awake. We all have unsaved family members or those who live next door to you or or those who work in the shop with you and we don't notice them the way we should. And so that is why Paul says, as you continue steadfastly in prayer, be watchful in it. And in the context of the rest of these verses, he's talking about praying for the salvation of unsaved people and then he adds at the end of verse two with thanksgiving god delights in answering prayers that are offered from a thankful heart in other words we're not just bringing them all of our god all of our problems and and dumping those on god now don't mishear me we are to cast all of our cares on him because he he cares for you but we're also to come with a heart of thanksgiving And thanking God for what he has already done in my life and what he's doing in my life and what God has already provided in my life. I mean, where would I be without him? You ever think about that? And so before we go running to God with all the things that I need and I want, we need to take a moment and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so as we continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, let us do it with thanksgiving. And then in verse 3, he continues with the same train of thought. He says, and at the same time, pray also for us. And what Paul is saying is while you're praying for yourselves, pray also for us. We also need your prayers. And we ask, who is the us he's referring to here? Well, we know from the opening verse of this letter that, that Brother Timothy is with Paul. But if you just scan down to verse 7 there and go all the way down to verse 14, you'll see the, there's a list of people who's with Paul while he's in Rome under house arrest. Now, of course, Paul cannot leave this house he's chained 24 7 to the praetorian roman guards but people can come and visit paul and we see that paul has a full house if you will starting with tychicus in verse 7 onesimus in verse 9 gotta love all these names Aristotle and mark in verse 10 jesus called justice in verse 11 epaphras in verse 12 luke the physician luke in verse 14 and paul says pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, a door for the word means an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ. And this door for the word must be opened by God. It is a divine appointment. It's all in God's perfect timing as he orchestrates the circumstances by which a a man's heart or a woman's heart is softened to receive the gospel by faith and to believe it, and suddenly a a door swings open and, and you now have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone in a way that you did not otherwise have the opportunity before. And just a couple things to know from this. Number one, again, only God can create these divine opportunities. Only God can open this door we can't force it open we can't make it open and that is why we have to pray and that is why we have to ask others to pray for us that God will open this door for the word to come through in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27 at the end of Paul's first missionary journey he and Barnabas reported to the church all that God had done ...through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, what is so interesting to me is that Paul is in a very difficult place. He doesn't know whether he is going to live or whether he will die. And yet, isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul doesn't ask for prayer to get him out of prison? Rather, he asks for prayer that while he's in prison that he will be the witness for Christ that God wants him to be. And I think this speaks volume to all of us here today. So often our prayers are, God, get me out of this situation that I'm in. Deliver me from this mess. When instead we need to prioritize, God, use me even if it is right here where I am. Help me to be the witness for Christ that you would want me to be in this difficulty what a testimony that a true believer in christ is victorious even in a dreadful situation and paul is such a great example for this this is the mindset that paul had and it's the mindset that you and i must have as well now there is a reason why paul wants them to pray that god would open this door for the word and he spells that out for us in the middle of verse three to declare the mystery of christ God, if you'll just open this door for me, if you'll just give me this opportunity at the right time, in the right place, to be able to talk to my coworker, or to be able to talk to that neighbor, or to be able to talk to my son or, or my mother-in-law. God, if you'll just give me the words to say and equip me to walk through that door so I can declare your truth with them. And Paul calls it the mystery of Christ. Now, what's he mean by the mystery of Christ? Well, the word mystery here refers to something that was previously veiled in the Old Testament but manifest in the New. Now, Christ is taught throughout the whole Old Testament, so don't misunderstand me. In fact, we see the promise of Messiah starting as early as... As Genesis 3.15, as God promises the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so Christ is revealed in the Old Testament, no doubt about it. I think of Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14, Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 52, 53, 61, 63. 66. I mean, Christ is just all through the Old Testament. But many of the texts in their time were pictures and types and, and foreshadows of what was to come. And when you come to the New Testament and Christ comes, the mystery is made known in the Lord Jesus Christ. He blows the top right off of it. It's really like one of those dimmer switches you've got in your kitchen or in your dining room. And you can, as you turn that dimmer switch up, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And that's the way the Bible is. It's called progressive revelation. And so by the time we come to the New Testament, what was a mystery in the Old Testament is now revealed in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So if Christ was revealed in the Old Testament, then what aspect of this was a mystery, you ask? Well, if you turn back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, remind us of it Um, and to understand this right away the content of this mystery is Christ himself (laughs) but Paul tells us in verse 26 the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations speaking of the patriarchs in the Old Testament but has now been manifested to his saints as to all New Testament believers to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. So Paul, tell me specifically, what is this mystery that has now been made known? And he tells us two things here at the end of verse 27. Here's the first thing, this mystery among the Gentiles. And so the first element of this mystery is Gentile salvation. The message of the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the... Gentiles. And, and though there were some Gentiles being saved in the Old Testament, the covenants and the promises came first through the Jewish people. But now, Paul says, now this mystery which has been hidden for the past ages and generations has been manifested to his saints. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, that dividing law of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been removed through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are all one in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, and we are all now one in Christ. And that was unheard of in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New But there's a second aspect of this mystery of Christ, which is even more astonishing. At the end of verse 27, after he says this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, now here it is, this is mind-boggling, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That not only will the Gentiles be brought into the same body of Christ, but Christ will actually be living inside of his believers, And we can kind of just take this for granted, but back then this was jaw-dropping. You're meaning to tell me that this coming Messiah who has come and and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for my sins and was buried and was raised from the dead and has ascended back to the right hand of God the Father, and when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He now moves into my life and abides in me? And no matter where I go or or what I do, Christ is inside of me, directing me and empowering me and convicting me and meeting the needs of my life. That when I need wisdom or guidance or direction, Christ is inside of me and he provides it. And when I am weak, he is Strong. strong. And he meets all of my needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus that's what this mystery is. It is a, a fuller revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the same gospel. It's just pulling the veil back a little bit more to see what all comes with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back to Colossians 4 and, and notice the end of verse 3. Paul speaking about this mystery that's been revealed in Christ, he then adds, on account of which, I am in prison and again Paul isn't in prison per se um, he is in chains under house arrest but he's in prison not because he's a thief he's not in prison because he killed somebody he's in prison for the sake of the gospel he's in prison because he's preached Christ and him crucified And this word prison just literally means to be bound or or fastened in chains. Paul is such a threat to the empire because of the gospel, and they're now just rotating the the praetorian guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week being chained to the apostle Paul. So what do you think Paul did? He kept preaching the gospel. He didn't have a turn-off switch. As Paul was concerned, he finally had a captive audience to preach to. And so Paul was just picking them off one at a time, leading them to Christ. In fact, at the end of the book of Philippians, one of my favorite verses, Paul says almost tongue-in-cheek, all the saints send their greetings in his letter to the church in Philippi. He says, especially those in Caesar's household. Praise the Lord. Caesar's palace was beginning to fill up these Roman guards who now follow the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. Think about it. Paul could have never gotten into Caesar's palace to preach the gospel, but the gospel has gotten into the palace because of Paul's chains. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, pray not for my release, but pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account which I am in prison. Now let me ask you something. You think God answered that prayer? I bet he did. I bet he did. And then I want you to notice what he says next as he finishes this thought in verse 4. He says... Um, When I do speak the gospel in these divine appointments, you need to pray for me, verse 4, that I may make it clear. Keep it simple. (laughs) Clarity is never overrated with the gospel. It's a simple message. Even a, a child can understand and believe. And I think far too often we can bring Just way too much side information all into it at once. So it just becomes information overload. We're talking about dinosaurs and this and that. It's got nothing to do with the gospel. And from reading a lot of Paul's thoughts um, through the years, I'm sure he struggled with this at times as well. Paul had a lot to say. You think I could talk? Paul packed a lot into a few paragraphs. It was unbelievable. And so Paul says, just pray for me that that I'll have these opportunities for Christ that when that door swings open and I go through and begin to tell others about Christ, pray that I can make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So this is what Paul's requesting prayer for. And, and really, we need to personalize this, this in our own life, that God will open doors of opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's point number one. How are we going to be an effective witness for Christ, you ask? We need to be a people who first pray purposefully. Point number two is we walk wisely. We walk wisely. In other words, we must live the gospel before we tell them the gospel. Who believers are gives credibility to what they say. And so in verse 5, Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And outsiders here refers to unbelievers. They're outside the kingdom of God. They're outside the sphere of salvation. They're outside the realm of redemption. And so he says, how you live your life in front of them is critically important. And is used by God for their coming to know the Lord. This is what the Lord uses. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. It's such a powerful chapter, John 13, on what being a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is. It says in verse 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember, initially it was love God and love your neighbor. Jesus raises the bar. I'm now a new commandment telling you that you need to love one another just as I have loved you. How did the Lord love you? Eternally? Sacrificially? Perfectly? Eternally? By this, Jesus said, by how well you love one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, there's a reason why once you're saved, you're not immediately caught up into the heavens, you're still here for a reason. You're still here with a purpose in mind to be my witnesses, to be my examples. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, go therefore to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so, We obey what God has commanded and we live that out for the world to see. And here in verse 5, there's a real earthiness about this illustration. We're not sitting in a palace or um, an ivory tower. Our feet are on the ground where it's dirty and we're walking through this dusty world in the midst of unbelievers. And so he says, walk in wisdom. Now, What's wisdom? Well, wisdom is how you apply knowledge to specific situations in your life. So you must have knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge without wisdom is really a deadly thing. You can have a head full of knowledge but not know how to live it out in your life. What good is that? Wisdom involves properly evaluating the circumstances in your life and then making godly, biblical decisions and obeying the will of God for your life. And this was Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae, actually, back in chapter 1 and verse 9, when Paul prayed for them that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And those two words should be circled or highlighted in your Bible, wisdom and understanding. Uh, this word for wisdom means like, uh, like insight. And in this context, it refers to the ability to concisely organize principles from Scripture. What, what's the root of what the Bible's saying for me to do here? And distill it down and, and apply that, that principle from it. These verses are great, right? Tells us to pray. Talks us to walk wisely. What's the principle? We need to be a people who pray. We need to walk wisely, right? And so, and so being able to, to organize that and, and understand that. And then this word for understanding refers more to the, the application of those principles into my everyday life. It's one thing to possess spiritual wisdom, but then you need a right understanding on how to apply it. In other words, you, you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, meaning you know a whole bunch of scripture. But if you are missing spiritual wisdom, then you are unable to apply the correct scripture to your situation. And so knowledge must never travel alone. Knowledge must always be accompanied by wisdom and understanding. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for the church in Colossae, exactly what you and I need in our spiritual lives. And it is the word of God that directs us into the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, and by extension to us, we need to walk in wisdom at home in front of your kids, uh, at your work in front of your coworkers, at school in front of the other students. You need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders as this is your testimony of the message that you are proclaiming. And then he says at the end of verse 5, making the best use of the time. And making here, this is great literally means redeeming or what was up? think of it sort of like as a thing that's on sale right now for a limited time it's making and if you're going to buy it you need to buy it right now because it's not going to be on sale next week it's going to be all gone I know you, some of you guys are real big on those right I got to get it the sale's going to be over And what he's saying is God gives us opportunities to talk to others about Christ, and you need to buy up those opportunities. You need to grab them while they're available, when they're presented, because they might not come back on sale again. Listen, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. James says, you're a mess that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I tell you, isn't that more and more true as we get older? Time just is going real fast. Jesus said in John 9, 4, Night is coming when no man can work. Be all done when the night comes. Our Lord may return, as we just said, at any moment. In fact, the Apostle Paul expects the urgency of time in this way. I really like this. Romans 13, 11 through 12. <clears throat> and do this. Understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Wake up! Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day, and that is the great day, is almost here. And so we must walk in wisdom towards outsiders as part of what God uses as really a, an apologetic to give evidence to the message and the power of the gospel. And we should stand out as lights all the more as the day is drawing near. It's getting darker and darker. Our light should be shining brighter and brighter. If you blend in with the rest of the world, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. The world doesn't need to see more watered-down, lukewarm Christians. They need to see those standing on the word of God, not willing to, to give anything to the world but rather to stand on the authority of God's word, not to compromise and to continue on faithfully as the day is drawing near. We need to stay light, not dim it down and look like everybody else. How are they going to find the gospel light when we all look like the rest of the world? The time is now, beloved, for believers to speak not only with their mouths, but maybe more importantly with our lives. And really, don't forget, the world is watching you to see whether what you claim about your life is true. That leads to verse 6, our final component in our effective witnessing, and this is also very important, as we need to also speak graciously. We need to not only walk wisely in front of outsiders, but we must also learn to speak graciously to them. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He writes, let your speech always be gracious. And here, he's talking about the manner of your speech. It should be gracious. In other words, it should be marked by kindness and gentleness and, and patience. You shouldn't be unnecessarily argumentative. Your words should always be with grace, as was Christ. And then he uses an image here in the middle of verse 6 that I think we can really all understand. He says, seasoned with salt. And "seasoning" means to prepare something or to make it ready. Salt also enhances the the flavor of, of food, making it more desirable to eat. And in the same way, the manner with which you speak the gospel make the gospel either desirable, the way you speak about the gospel either makes it desirable or undesirable. So if all you do is go around and whack people over the head with the Bible and and say, uh, Turn or you're burning. That's not letting your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. That's not making it desirable to, to eat. And so he says about the speech, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, each person refers to each unbeliever, and they're all coming from a different place in life. They're they're all of a a different age and and different religious backgrounds, etc. And you need to know how to respond to each person. In other words, you shouldn't have memorized a a speech or or the same script that you share with with each unbeliever, and you just say the same thing to everybody. But you need to, to tailor what you say to that person based upon the questions that they may have. And that's what Paul suggests here at the end of the verse. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That means that we're not only talking, that we're listening to what they have to say and giving a reason of the hope that lies in us. And that's exactly the way it was with Jesus. And, and just to use him really as the, the perfect example, as, as Jesus really met people where they were And spoke to each of them really in in a unique way. For example, there was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And and we read from that story in John 3, 3. Jesus answered him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what I love about this is Nicodemus hasn't even asked Jesus a question yet. And yet Jesus is already answering him as he cuts right to the chase and he says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. All right? And there are times and there are people in our witnessing that we need to be direct with. They've heard the gospel, they know the truth, but it hasn't worked its way down in here. They might know it up here, but it hasn't reached down to here. And for them, we need to say, like Jesus did, you need to be born again. How about another example? Next chapter, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Here, Jesus doesn't play hardball with her right away. He approaches her first with conversation. Jesus says, will you give me a drink of water? And, and he's building a bridge that he's going to walk across when she's ready. And after some back and forth, Jesus now seizes opportunity to reach her. And so he says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus says, Go, call your husbands and and come here. And and the woman said, I have no husband. And then you know the rest of the story as it goes. and Jesus now plays hardball with her, and, and he confronts her on her sin. But in this situation, those weren't the first words that came out of his mouth. You see, Jesus tailors to each situation, depending on if you're Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, or if you're the Samaritan woman at the well. And what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus had a different way to talk to different people depending on who they are and where they were and and what they knew and what they didn't know and what's going on in their life. He had a different way talking to the Pharisees, did he not? And so, as you and I are living our, our Christian lives and we are intersecting with people, we need to be led with the Holy Spirit of God to know how to respond to each person. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that they may know how you ought to answer each person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, With some, we speak directly. And with others, we we speak patiently with them, um, building that bridge, um, making that relationship that at the right time, the Lord will open up that door of opportunity to bring the word across to them. And so Paul's words here are, are relevant and very practical for everyone here today. How will you carry these out? Who do you need to begin to pray for? who's in your family, in your neighborhood, who's at your office, who's in your school. None of us here today can say, well, there's no one in my life that needs the Lord. Every one of us has people around us who need the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, will you continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful and thankful in it? Will you pray for these people and ask God to open doors of opportunity for you to proclaim the word and declare Christ and him crucified? And will you live a godly life before them like a light set up on a hill walking in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time that we have left? Well, I hope that we all will and that this passage blessed you as much as it blessed me in my study time. If you are in need of prayers today, the leaders will be down front here and would love to pray with you at this time. I invite you to please stand as we praise the Lord Jesus Christ, your great name. Thank you.